0: This is Trump Watch, I'm John Wiener, live in LA on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, California versus Trump, an irrepressible conflict, Harold Meyerson will report, plus Margaret Atwood on The Handmaid's Tale, Season 2 starts next Wednesday. First up, Viet Wynn on Refugee Writers and Refugee Lives. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, one of the defining features of Trump's politics, it's no secret, has been the way he's appealed to hatred and fear of refugees and immigrants. Now, refugee writers and refugee lives are featured in a new book. It's called The Displaced, and it's edited by Viet Nguyen. He's the author of three books, including the unforgettable novel The Sympathizer. It won the Pulitzer Prize. He's the recipient of a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant. And he was selected, I think it was yesterday, as a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, along with ta Coates, Sonia Sotomayor, and Barack Obama. He also teaches at USC, where he's Arnold Chair of English Complet, and American Studies and Ethnicity. Last time we talked to him here, it was about the sympathizer. Viet Nguyen, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, John. And congratulations on the academy appointment.
1: Isn't that weird? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> strange, to be, strange to have my name mentioned in the company of those other names that you... That you
0: well, you know. al- alphabetical order puts you right next to Obama. It's a, it's a great thing. Well, let's see if the seating chart works out the same way. <laughs> well, in the, in your introduction to this wonderful new book that is placed, you insist on being called a refugee and not an immigrant. Why is that? Well, I think it's the immigrant idea
1: in America is very strong. Right? We, we call ourselves a nation of immigrants, and it's a part of our mythology that immigrants come here and they achieve the American dream. And I think even at this moment in history where the xenophobic feelings in American society that have always been there are reaching another peak, even those people who don't like immigrants nevertheless believe in that immigrant idea, like, of course immigrants would want to come to the United States because we're awesome, but refugees <laughs> yes. are different. You know, refugees are unwanted where they come from, they're unwanted where they go to, they're a different legal category, they're a different category of feeling in terms of how the refugees experience themselves, and they're a much more despised category even for, than immigrants for so many people in the United States. So it's very easy for someone like me to pass himself off as an immigrant to pretend to be an immigrant, but I feel like I'm doing a disservice. I feel like I'm not speaking the truth, and I feel that it's necessary for people like me who have benefited from being an, a refugee uh, to acknowledge our existence as such
0: and to advocate for the refugees today. Well, I looked up some of the statistics on refugees today, uh, and about. Trump's current policy. Last September, Trump slashed the cap on refugees admitted to the United States. <clears throat> Obama, under Obama, it had, the target was 110,000. Uh, Trump officially slashed that to 45,000. But this year, it looks like he only 22,000 will be Resettled, which is about a fifth of what Obama's target was. If we look at Syrian refugees admitted to the United States, uh, 2016, Obama around 15,000; 2017, around 3,000; and thus far in 2018, 11. A total of 11. That's how drastic Trump has has uh, slashed um, refugee. Admissions to the United States. Uh, getting back to your story, you became a refugee uh, in 1975. You were four years old. Uh, what's the story there? How did that happen?
1: Well, we, my parents were fleeing from the Vietnam War, and they were obviously from the southern side, so they were among the losing side. And so, along with 130,000 other Vietnamese people who were afraid of communism, they decided to flee the country, and they were among the lucky ones who managed to get out because. I think the CIA was estimating there was about a million South Vietnamese people who had some kind of affiliation with the United States who really wanted to leave and couldn't. So this 130,000 group of uh, population ended up in the United States in one of four refugee camps, and my parents and I ended up in Fort Indian Town Gap in Pennsylvania. And that's where my memories begin, uh, in a refugee camp, and being taken away from my parents, because in order to leave one of these camps, you had to have a sponsor. Well, one sponsor took my parents, One sponsor took my 10-year-old brother, and one sponsor took four-year-old me, which when you're four years old, it's very traumatic to be separated from your parents. Uh, And I speak now as a father of a four-year-old son, and and, and looking at him, I see myself, and and I just imagine how painful (sighs) that that experience would have been for me and for my parents. So that's where memory begins with this narrative, and that's why I feel, you know, for me, I've never forgotten being a refugee because of that trauma.
0: You write in the introduction to the displaced, I do not remember many things, and for all those things I do not remember, I am grateful, close quote. Why is that?
1: If you do any reading into refugee experiences, what you discover is that people who are refugees almost uniformly have (laughs) suffered terribly in trying to escape the country they were fleeing from and in trying to get to the countries that they want to go to. And in the case of, just this South Vietnamese population that we're talking about—the uh, refugee experience was horrendous. You know, many, many, many lives were lost. Many terrible things happened to the people who were trying to flee. And at four years old, I didn't remember any of that kind of stuff. My my brother, who is ten, you know, has, remembers dead paratroopers hanging from the trees yes. on the mountain route that we were uh, escaping our home city from where we were walking downhill about 180 kilometers trying to make it to a port town to get a boat to Saigon. And that mountain route from the research that I've done as an adult was clogged with tens of thousands of civilians and all their vehicles and property and tens of thousands of South Vietnamese soldiers fleeing as well. It was a nightmare. So no one who's been through that experience has ever forgotten it. And those are traumatic, terrible things to have witnessed. So that's why I'm thankful that I don't actually remember these things myself, and I have the luxury
0: of reconstructing them from other people's memories. Uh, You say that refugees like you and your family in America today are both invisible and hyper-visible. Please explain what you mean.
1: Well, by that I mean we share a situation that is completely common for just about any minority or marginalized population in this country or in any other country. We're invisible in the sense that people, the rest of America, doesn't know about our existence and doesn't care to know about our existence. So when my book started to come out, for example, The Sympathizer, I've had many people come up to me and say, well, we were there uh, in 1975 or the 1970s when the Vietnamese refugees started coming to town and we knew nothing about them and we never cared to ask. We were invisible, but we become hyper-visible when we become a problem, when we become gangsters or when we become visible as welfare cheats and things like that. But there's no in-between. We're not allowed the luxury of just being normal, just being visible, like everybody else in, in majority American society. And so we fluctuate then between never
0: being seen and only being seen as a problem. And now we get to the writers uh, featured in, in the book you edited, The Displaced. Uh, you have a wonderful sentence about being uh, a, a writer about refugees. I keep my tattered memories of being a refugee close to me. Why is that?
1: I think it's easy for people who have undergone some kind of terrible loss or some kind of terrible experience to forget about these things, although it's not easy. It's, it's desirable for them to do so. So I've actually met quite a few refugees who don't acknowledge that they are refugees. They just call themselves immigrants, because again, it's easier to call yourself an immigrant. If you call yourself an immigrant here, uh, you fit. people, people will, will want to hear your heartwarming story about getting to this country and succeeding. Yes. If you say you're a refugee, that's the quickest way to kill a cocktail party conversation, because people <laughs> can't relate to that. So that's why I keep those tattered memories close to me, because number one, it's important to, to do this work of reminding uh, other refugees and other Americans that we exist. But number two, it makes me empathetic. It makes me feel for these new refugees and what they're going through, and that's an important thing for me as a writer and a human being to do, because I know that there are some former refugees out there who are saying, you know what, we're the good refugees, we deserve to be here, all these new people from the Middle East or Syria, for example, they're the bad refugees, they're different, we've got to close the door on these people, and I think that's fundamentally wrong.
0: Yeah, I just saw an opinion poll, I just came out today, of... Uh, a majority of people in Texas oppose Trump's border wall, uh, but something like twenty five percent of Latinos support it. Now you might say, well twenty five percent is almost none, but that's a lot of of uh, people in in Texas of Latino descent, mostly from Mexico, who are in favor of a wall. You kind of have to wonder what what are they thinking about? You have any insight into that? Well, I, I think it's very human <laughs> to be afraid
1: uh, of other people, and that just because the people who are going to cross the border might be Mexicans or people further south of Mexico, we really can't expect people of Mexican ancestry in the United States to automatically welcome them with open arms. I mean, you, know, I, I, you look at the experience of any country. Oftentimes, the people who hate who hate each other the most are your neighbors. Okay. Mm, yes. So it's, it's, that's what leads to civil war and ethnic fratricide and things like that. So I think it's not surprising. But it's also very American. You know, we're a very forgetful country. We, the people who come here tend to forget their origins over time. So some of the people who are the staunchest anti-immigrant advocates are only one or two generations removed from that immigrant experience. And then finally, I think we shouldn't uh, you know, forget that perhaps people are worried about being contaminated yeah. by the presence of these new refugees or new immigrants. Right? If you've worked hard to establish your American identity here, the last thing you might want is for the person who is just across the, just across the border uh, in an undocumented fashion or who has just come fresh off the boat, to use that kind of racist language, the last thing you wanna do is to see them because their presence might remind other Americans that you look like those people.
0: If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Viet Nguyen about refugees and refugee writers. He's the editor of a new collection called The Displaced. Let's talk about some of the other refugees who write in the book The Displaced. Some of them are very famous, uh, Ariel Dorfman on Chile, Alexander Hamon on Bosnia, and some are lesser known. Are there any that you want to... uh, that you find especially significant or interesting?
1: Well, of course, I think they're all powerful writers and powerful stories, and one of the pleasures of editing this collection is just to collect 17 writers writing about very different kinds of experiences and, and seeing the kinds of very human stories that they're telling. Uh, Cal Kalia Yang, for example, has a, has, has a bit on what it was like to be a Hmong child in a, a refugee camp in Thailand. And of course in a refugee camp the parents are, are, are struggling to survive, they're not really there to try to take care of the kids. These little boys and girls were there to defend for themselves. And they, despite the fact that, the, that, that there were kids, were deeply concerned about survival and struggling uh, to fight and doing things that were dangerous in order to try to bring
0: food to the table for their own refugee parents. I thought that was a really Yeah, let me say a word story. about I was very interested in that one, too. Kao Kalia Yang, um, um, a Hmong writer. Uh, I was especially interested because I'm from St. Paul, Minnesota, and of course the Twin Cities are one of the ma- main places in the United States that the Hmong immigrated to, and there's a big community there, which actually is pretty well-known, uh, but most of the stories that you read, there aren't very many Hmong writers, there's some, uh, but most of their stories are about coming to the United States and the transition, rather than being little kids uh, 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 in Southeast Asia. So I, I really enjoyed that one. Thanks for including it.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Another story that touches on what we just talked about in terms of the border is Reina Grande's "The Parent Who Stays," and Reina Grande is, you know, is a writer and everything. Uh, and you would most typically classify her as being someone who is undocumented. But I was interested in this question of what is the distinction between someone who's undocumented or so-called illegal or an immigrant versus someone who's a refugee. From south of the border, why do we call these people who are trying to cross the border immigrants or undocumented or illegal versus refugees? Because a lot of them are actually fleeing from war, for example, whether it's it's an actual war or whether it's a drug war, which is pretty close to an actual war. So I wanted an essay that would draw attention to that distinction. So she talks about what it means to, to be to be an undocumented person, but also that perhaps we could call some of these people refugees. And one of the reasons we don't is because it's a politically loaded classification. If we start calling people refugees, according to the UN, they're owed certain kinds of rights and obligations uh, to which, you know, the United States has agreed. So there's an important uh, uh, incentive for the United States not to call certain kinds of people refugees, especially people from south of the border in whose countries we've meddled quite a bit.
0: You, uh, so the kind of the purpose of a book like The Displaced is to help us imagine the lives of refugees, but you say in your introduction that this imagining can lead us to deceive ourselves. What do you mean there? Well, I think that this is a part of the problem
1: with literature. You know, literature's strength is built on, on empathy, um, both the empathy of authors and the empathy of readers. We want to get to know other characters, other people from, from different places. And this is a very powerful thing. But it's also deceptive because it's a luxury. I think we we want to know about terrible situation X and and sympathetic person Y, and we've read their story, and and our our hearts are warmed, and and our, our emotions are moved, but what happens if we don't do anything? What happens if we just put down that book and pick up another book? What happens if we don't donate money, if we don't get involved in an aid organization? What happens if we don't call our elected officials? What happens if we don't march in the streets? What happens if we don't take action, and I think that's the danger of... Of literature, that it can as much as it awakens our feelings, it can also lull us into a sense of complacency that we've already done something simply by reading about someone 's
0: situation. and I should uh, add here that the publisher of the displaced, Abrams, is donating ten percent of the cover price to the International Rescue Committee, uh, one of the one or two leading nonprofits in the world that's been providing humanitarian relief to refugees since World War two um, I know you 're a supporter of the IRC and they're an important part of this book
1: no, absolutely. I think that there are important organizations like the IRC that are carrying out this work they've been doing it for a long time you know there there are uh, by u n estimates twenty two and a half million uh, refugees in the world right now, um, and that is out of a population of sixty six and a half million uh, displaced people, as the U.N. calls them. Uh, so th- if you add all these people up together, they're a very large country. That would be a country that's larger than France. Yeah. So there's, there's pressing need for these types of organizations and,
0: and the work that they do. One last thing I wanted to ask you about. You had a piece in the New York Times last Sunday, and the title was Don't Call Me a Genius. You, of course, are the winner of what is usually called, in fact, we just called it in introducing you, a MacArthur Genius grant. Uh, why don't you want people to use that word to describe you?
1: Well, first of all, let me just say, I didn't write that title. Okay. <laughs> it's a, it's a, the whole piece is actually about the, the, the problems with genius, not that I don't want to be called a genius, but you know, it's, it's, it's about this idea that when we say genius nowadays in uh, our society, we're typically talking about some individual of remarkable talent or achievement and we lob this person and we, and we elevate this person. And it, in my case, you know, it's related to the label that's often put upon someone like me, a writer from a minority or marginalized community. Uh, I have been called a voice for the voiceless. Yeah. Many writers like me have been called that. And a voice for the voiceless is just this kind of thing that we trot out whenever someone is uh, writing about an experience we don't know anything about. And that, that's meant to be a compliment, you know, that this person is exceptional. And that's why it's dangerous. Uh, because when we call someone a voice for the voiceless, what we're really saying is we don't want to hear all the other voices that are out there. It's easier dealing with one person. And I think that's the same thing with genius. And my, my feeling is that if I've been able to achieve anything as a writer, it's partly yes, through hard work on my own, but partly also through a whole history of people who have sacrificed before me, other writers who have come before, other voices for the voiceless who have all been forgotten now for the most part, um... My work is made possible by the, you know, all these social and political struggles by Asian Americans, by African Americans, by by so many other people that have created the space for someone like me not to be persecuted or discriminated against simply by the fact of my own existence. So for me, genius is actually something that needs to be considered in the context of communities, that one of the older meanings of genius is actually the spirit of a community. And I come out of an Asian American community, Vietnamese American community whose struggles, again, have made it possible for me to do the work that I do. And I don't think of myself as a voice for them who are voiceless people because they're actually all really, really loud. (laughs) I think that my work is aligned both with literature but also with these social and political movements whose goal is, yes, to get more voices out there, but really to transform the conditions of our society so that we don't have voiceless people anymore. And that's a really long-term struggle that we're engaged in.
0: The Long-Term Struggle. The book is The Displaced, Refugee Writers on Refugee Lives. It's edited by Viet Wynn. Viet, thanks for talking with us today. It's been great having you on the show. Thanks so much, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the trumpwatchpodcast.com. Next up, California versus Trump with Harold Meyerson. Harold, welcome back.
2: Always good to be here, John.
0: Well, let's talk about California politics, about the Senate race. There's uh, uh, Who are the Republicans running for the Senate uh, this November in California? Well,
2: I, 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 I think I noted in a piece in the prospect that to call the, Senate, the Republicans running for Senate obscure is to give them more credit for being well-known than they actually are. Uh, essentially nobody. Uh, no no prominent or even sub-prominent or sub-sub-prominent <laughs> Republican even filed for the Senate, because, you know, there have been about more than 70 elections for statewide office since Arnold Schwarzenegger was re-elected governor in 2006, and the Republicans have won exactly zero of them. So they're, they're kind of giving up on, uh, on the statewide level, and because we have this jungle primary, uh, the uh, Senate race hits the incumbent Democratic senator, Diane Feinstein, who has been senator in the state since 1992, um, against uh, who, until very recently, was the state Senate President Kevin DeLeon, Uh And tell who us, tell to, us, uh, Feinstein's left.
0: Yeah, tell us a little bit more about what it means to be running to Feinstein's left. What, what is the po- so this is the politics of California today in the Senate race? Uh, Kevin Leon's challenge to incumbent Senator Dianne Feinstein for the Democratic uh, nomination. What are the politics here? Well,
2: Feinstein has always been uh, a bit more centrist and center-right than most, uh, most California Democrats. She, uh, for instance, voted uh, to authorize the uh, Iraq War, uh, which uh, most of the California congressional delegation opposed. She voted for uh, the tax cuts of George W. Bush, which were highly regressive. Uh, And while some other Democratic senators joined her in that vote, they were all from red states or or purple states. California is neither a red nor a purple state. It is a blue state, and uh, she was the only senator from such a state to vote for that. And she has made some remarks about Trump treating him as a semi-normal or at least educable human being, which I I, I think most Californians Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly most California Democrats think is at, at, at best fanciful thinking. So there's always been space to Dianne Feinstein's left. I mean, the other senator for years, while well, she was senator, Barbara Boxer certainly occupied a space to her left. Kamala Harris does right now, and Kevin de León has really been the the moving force in Sacramento for progressive legislation, uh, labor on uh, the environment, on and on. The uh, you know the guy who came out with our sanctuary state status. Uh, I think very much. A personification of what California uh, is today, uh, and and Feinstein, uh, you know, pretty much is, I think, representative of the California of the nineteen eighties, which was a lot wider, had um, uh, not as much poverty, uh, and uh, whose immigrants were not under the kind of assault that they're uh, that they're under today.
0: Well, one of the most remarkable things uh, about the current. Uh, Senate race within the Democratic Party is that the party uh, at its convention did not endorse Dianne Feinstein, the incumbent, for 26 years. There's also some other significant endorsements that she has not gotten. Uh, Tell us about that.
2: Well, she'd already been losing a couple of major unionist endorsements, the California nurses, the service employees who have more than 700,000 members in California. But then last Thursday... Uh, the state AFL CIO, which is the conglomeration of most unions, uh, voted to endorse De Leon, uh, and that took more than a two- that required a two thirds vote, and he got that two thirds vote, uh, which is really, again, for uh, an organization that, in many ways, is the pillar of the Democratic establishment, uh, a really remarkable statement. And it's a statement uh, in, in the case of Feinstein, it's it's a statement not only in some ways that she represents an older state that no longer exists and is to the right of most Democratic activists uh, in the state, also that she really, uh, oddly enough, had had virtually no contact with any of the folks uh, who've been representing California workers for many years. She sent a letter saying, you know, I'm sorry, I haven't been in touch with you guys.
0: Oh, Uh, man. This
2: was sort of a mea culpa. Uh, You know, I would venture to say that most progressive Activists or prominent activists in the state have actually worked with DeLeon on environmental stuff, on climate change stuff, on uh, raising the minimum wage—that uh, that, that kind of stuff. So uh, he's a known quantity, and he's a quantity that uh, those folks look very favorably on.
0: And the big picture here is is that uh, California is <clears throat> America's biggest state, and it's also Trump's biggest opponent. Uh, And we're not talking here just about the voters, that more people uh, voted for Hillary Clinton in California by far than any other state. The state government has been very active in challenging the Trump administration in the courts. Uh, Tell us where we stand uh, on that front.
2: Well, in a sense, the challenge began the morning after the election when Bill drafted a statement that he also persuaded the leader of the other house of the legislature, uh, as Speaker Anthony Rendon to sign, saying, you know, this is this is not our America, and we, uh, you know, don't share the, uh, the president-elect's values. So literally day one, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the gap was there in, in the level of California leadership. And then Jerry Brown uh, has, has been pretty uh, outspoken in his opposition to the uh, anti-immigrant and the uh, uh, Anti environmental stances, uh, which, which you know directly affect California from authorizing oil drilling on the coast to uh, weakening the fuel efficiency standards here. And so Brown, the person Brown appointed as Attorney General after the uh, preceding Attorney General, Kamala Harris, uh, went to the Senate, uh, Congressman Javier Becerra, now Attorney General Javier Becerra. I think the, uh, the New York Times had a piece suggesting that he had filed suit, this is last week, so the number may have gone up since then. but had suit had uh,
0: 29 lawsuits 29, 29, 29 lawsuits by California against Trump uh, we only know about two or three of these you mentioned air pollution standards uh, and and uh, immigration oh, yeah, I mean, enforcement I, filed
2: suit. I mean some of them some of them are on uh, like you know the, the Muslim travel ban which has been already struck down by the courts uh the opposition to his suspension of DACA, which has also been struck down by the courts. So some of these have already had a day in court, though everything eventually gets appealed. Um, and uh, you know, I mean the uh, the outrages on the Trump administration keep coming and uh, uh Attorney General Becerra has been very good on saying, you know, that's a, a, a fundamental violation of rights. That's a fundamental affront to American values, that sort of stuff. And uh in the case of uh uh auto uh, fuel efficiency standards, uh, this, this could be a really knockdown down drag-out fight. that could go on for quite some time. You know, Cali- it's not just that California ha- is allowed by law to have stricter standards. This goes back to the Clean Air Act of, of 1970. Uh, stricter uh, fuel, uh, fuel efficiency standards than the rest of uh, than the federal government sets, but uh, the law also allows other states, if they wish, to adopt the California standards, and 12 other states have. So if if we're in sort of a prolonged standoff with the federal government on this, the the auto industry is looking at uh, possibly having to make uh, uh, two versions of every car they 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 roll out—one for California and the twelve other states, one for the rest of the United States. They don't want this, and so I think there. i there's been some coverage that they're trying to broker a settlement, but on you know deporting uh, uh, undocumented immigrants who you know of, who are exemplary. Americans, actually, and on a whole host of other issues. There is no powerful third party brokering stuff. There is just what I what I termed in the LA Times, the phrase that then New York Senator uh, William Seward uh, used describing the state of relations between the North and the South three years before the Civil War. He called it an irrepressible conflict. And I think we're in Pretty much of an irrepressible conflict today. Uh, uh, the, the fundamental values of Donald Trump's America and the fundamental values of blue America, the more multiracial, uh, more culturally tolerant, uh, and so on America, as particularly personified by California, or stateified, not personified, <laughs> uh, that, that's a very fundamental conflict between two very different Americas. And I think we're going to have this for quite some time.
0: Uh, perhaps I should note that there was a letter to the published in the uh, uh, L.A. Times, uh, taking issue with you on this uh, very it question of California being the leading force, the source of all uh, of <clears throat> the, the most important challenges to Trump. The author pointed out that. Trump actually got more votes in California than any other state. Uh, I think Texas was second and Florida was third. Uh, Does this uh, destroy your argument? Well, if you look
2: at uh, the states by population, number one is California, number two is Texas, and number three is Florida. (laughs) Uh, That means more people vote uh, in those order, one, two, three, uh, Mm. in those states than any other states. But the fact is... uh, Hillary Clinton's margin of, uh, over Donald Trump in California was 4 million votes yeah. um, which is huge which is more than her national margin it goes down once you add in the other 49 states although she did, she did get 2.5 million more votes than, uh, than Donald Trump uh, Republicans get lots of votes in California but because California is so huge uh, you know, they're, they're a drop in the bucket if you look at it, how the states voted on a percentage basis uh California uh, was second only to Hawaii. They both were at 61-point-something percent uh, in support for Hillary Clinton. And therefore, uh, California, the percentage of votes for Donald Trump, therefore, in California was lower than in any state but Hawaii. So in a word, no, that
3: letter's is wrong.
0: <laughs> I think you have convinced me. Uh, I want to switch tracks now and raise a completely a different, although related question, the teacher strikes. The teacher strikes have been the biggest surprise of the year for people who thought labor militancy was dead in America. Uh, I think today teachers in Arizona are voting on they are, uh, yes. a strike uh, ballot. Uh, the governor of Arizona, just because they are voting, has already proposed giving pe- teachers a something like a 20% pay raise by 2020 uh, my understanding is they are not going to go for that. We've they they feel the financing isn't clear on where this money is going to come from. They don't want it to be taken away from other parts of the schools. We've seen some amazing victories for teachers, uh, first in West Virginia, then in <clears throat> then in Kansas. What what's going on here? Well, actually, uh, I, I think we want to go back to
2: Kansas first because. That, that gives, uh, uh, I think, a clearer indication of the, the breadth and scope of the revolt we're seeing, because it's several revolts rolled into one. Uh, Kansas was not a teacher's revolt. It was a parents' revolt. Kansas had uh, a governor, uh, Sam Brown back, a Republican, who had ensured uh, the election of all these little brown backs to the state legislature, and they <laughs> slashed taxes uh, uh, in a regressive way, absolutely totally, decimating uh, Kansas public schools. Now, you know, uh, these are good Republicans in Kansas. I'm sure there are good Democrats in Kansas, but it's kind of like the flip side of how it's just describing California. Uh, the, the Republicans vastly outnumbered the Democrats there. And eventually the Republican parents got completely fed up <coughs> with their school days, uh, you know, with, with, with school weeks that were only four days long with underfunding. And so they voted to oust the Brownback Republicans and they've elected some Democrats and they elected some moderate Republicans. And last year, they overrode the governor's veto, and that took two thirds in each house. Both Republican-controlled. They overrode his vetoes, and they raised taxes to better fund the schools. So we're beginning to see this revolt against trickle-down, extreme Republican economics, uh, even before it takes the form of these teacher strikes. All of them, also in heavily Republican states: like Virginia, Oklahoma, uh, Kentucky, and uh, possibly tomorrow in uh, in Arizona. We're also seeing, you know, because these are all states in which uh, uh, public employees, including teachers, either don't have collective bargaining rights or have, you know, somewhat curtailed collective bargaining rights, we're seeing teachers mobilize in many ways outside the structure of unions, uh, using Facebook uh, uh, to get uh, all teachers across the state. And then the union kind of represents them in the actual dealings with the state and as the closer of a deal. So... You know, part of the problem uh, of, of some Facebook mobilizations from Occupy Wall Street to Cairo, Egypt, and, and Istanbul, where, you know, you have these huge occupations all built by Facebook, is they have no structure to negotiate anything. This is, this is kind of in a sweet spot, because you get you use social media uh, uh, to, 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 you know, really build a, a massive outpouring, and of course it requires massively bad conditions to be the precondition for the out, massive outpouring. Uh and, and then the unions uh do what they what what, what they traditionally do. They're not in in these instances uh as they used to be, the primary source of, of worker mobilization. That can go on through social media, but they are the indispensable element in uh um, in, in, in in getting to an acceptable deal as they did in West Virginia.
0: Fascinating, fascinating changes that you're outlining. Uh I just recall that teacher strikes used to be Uh, the most controversial kind of strike in America, the opponents of teacher strikes said, well, they're striking against the children. And uh, the parents often were the leading opponents of teacher strikes. That also seems to have changed in the last year.
2: Yes. Uh, Well, actually, it changed uh, when when the teachers went out in Chicago in 2012. Like uh, all of these teacher strikes of this year, they were saying, look, you're not just, Underfunding us, you're underfunding the public schools, and and you know the parents can see the underfunding. They they you know they, they, if the classroom leaks when it rains, uh, you know that that's the kind of thing that the, the parents are not crazy about. Uh, and and so uh, it, it's you know where these strikes have been going on are places where uh, there's huge underfunding of the schools. And West Virginia, look, is admittedly. You know, a poor state. Uh, the same cannot be said of Oklahoma, where they have tons of oil income. The same cannot be said of Arizona, uh, but the but the schools are being starved, and the teachers are being underpaid, and the parents are, as they showed in Kansas, uh, on the teachers' side. And you know what? What this augurs for the whole Republican. Trickle down model and the Grover Norquist pledge. You know, all these Republicans take office and we take the Norquist pledge that we're never going to raise taxes. You haven't heard much about the Norquist pledge in the last three, <laughs> three or four <laughs> no. months because hundreds of Republican legislators are fleeing from it and saying, "Oh my God, we got to put more money in the schools." Well, okay, we'll have to raise some taxes. Okay, we'll
0: do it. Uh... And of course, in West Virginia, it was not just the teachers who ended up with more money, but all the state employees got a raise. That was also a remarkable and, and unexpected uh, uh, result.
2: Well, that was that, that again was partly uh, uh, the result of being able to mobilize for social media, and it's partly because there were some really visionary activists active in uh, in West Virginia who um, sort of expanded the what they were bargaining for and. Uh, uh, and they got it because you know the the, the state had changed. So I, you know, I mean, you know, compare and contrast to the new congressional tax cut. You know, uh, uh, oh, we're Republicans. We have to cut taxes on wealth. Well, guys, in your own states, in the Republican-run states, uh, your own voters are saying, "Well, enough. You're doing this at the expense of our kids. You're doing this at the expense of our state. Stop. Raise some taxes. Do it progressively. Raise some taxes in Oklahoma oil companies." And you know, so, so I, I really question, uh, you know, the notion, and I think the polls are beginning to show this, that the uh, uh, the, the national tax cut uh, that the Republicans put through, chiefly on the rich, is going to benefit the party. I don't think so,
0: Harold Meyerson. He wrote about the irrepressible conflict between California and Trump for the LA Times op-ed page, and he's been covering the teacher strikes for the American Prospect. You can read him there at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show.
2: Always great to be here, John.
0: I'm John Wiener, live in LA on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, Margaret Atwood on The Handmaid's Tale, that's in a minute, on KPFK when our program continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, this is happening, Jerry, quickly. But first, The Handmaid's Tale. It returns to TV for a second season on April 25th, that's next Wednesday, on Hulu. When it premiered a year ago, we talked about it with the woman who wrote it, Margaret Atwood, She's one of our heroes. She's written more than 20 novels and 30 or 40 other books, poetry, essays, short stories, other stuff. Today, we want to talk about The Handmaid's Tale. It's a story about the United States after a coup has abolished democracy and established a theocratic dictatorship. The book has been translated into more than 40 languages. Now, it's a Hulu miniseries starting on April 26th and starring Elizabeth Moss, who is fabulous. It's also the first work of feminist dystopian fiction ever featured in a Super Bowl halftime ad. So Margaret Atwood, welcome.
3: Thank you. Is it the first work of fiction period that was ever featured in a Super Bowl halftime ad? I
0: I think so. Those ads are mostly, you know, beer and,
3: and cars. Well, there you go. Good I, company anyway
0: congratulations to you and Hulu for getting this on TV during Trump's first 100 days that's quite an achievement
3: well I, th- I think it was a I think it was a coincidence because they started planning the series quite a long time before the election and they started putting it together I think Elizabeth Moss signed in April of 2016 and they started filming in September of two sixteen. So it's just that the election gave it much more relevance.
0: Yeah. In fact the LA Times called the Hulu handmaid's tale shockingly relevant in the age of Trump. But what would it what would have happened if, if Hillary had won? What would have been like to win? Well I it think down? it
3: would have been like, oh look what we just avoided <laughs> Okay. <laughs> It might have been that, or it might have been Hillary is the new Ann Dowd playing Aunt Lydia. It might have been that. <laughs> <laughs> we don't actually know. Oh, dear.
0: It, the Handmaid's sale does seem shockingly relevant in the age of Trump, but I, I don't think you were thinking about Donald Trump when you wrote it, were you?
3: I was not thinking about Donald Trump back in 1984 when I started writing it. I was thinking about dictatorships of the 20th century, and uh, also the kinds of talking that people were already doing in the United States at that time, which I was finding in magazines and newspapers, and they were talking about what they would like to do should they get the power to do it, so which which of uh, recently acquired women's rights would let they like to abolish and roll back, among other things.
0: In the story of The Handmaid's Tale, the birth rate has fallen drastically because toxic pollution has interfered with fertility, and women who are still fertile are enslaved to ruling class men and their wives to bear children for them. There's also a totalitarian Christian police state fighting a... Yeah, I
3: wouldn't call it Christian. What would you call, I would it? call it? I would call it just, It's it's theocratic, and it's literalist, but the part about loving your neighbor is not in there. <laughs>
0: That's an excellent point. As Rebecca Mead wrote in that wonderful piece in The New Yorker, the book and the miniseries quote, do not map closely onto the present moment, mostly because Donald Trump, while he's a misogynist, he's not particularly religious. He likes supermodels. He brags about grabbing pussy. Nevertheless, the book does seem shockingly relevant. I wonder what you see as the parts that feel most familiar today.
3: Okay, so Donald Trump, and and when you ask people who know the world, why did the evangelicals vote for him? Yeah. So it's not Donald Trump you're looking at there. It's who supported him and, and why. And uh, there's a biblical explanation for everything, and I do know the Bible quite well because I'm Canadian of a certain generation and we had it in school. So what their explanation is is that God has often used ungodly figures to advance God's agenda, and they will mention people like Nebuchadnezzar and things like that. So they see Donald Trump as an ungodly figure who nonetheless it's been used by God to advance God's agenda, namely theirs. So that's how it maps onto the present moment. That is the, that is the thinking of the supposedly Christian evangelicals who voted for Donald Trump, hoping that he would help them get what they wanted.
0: And, of course, we have Vice President Pence, who is a religious patriarch and misogynist.
3: Yeah, well... Uh, I don't know about his misogyny, but but certainly he is much more orthodox, shall we say, than Donald Trump has ever been.
0: And basically the whole return to patriarchy seems very much a part of the Trump White House, just those pictures of all the old white men uh, wearing uh, blue suits shoulder to shoulder.
3: Uh, yeah, I think that's part of the message. And part of the message is, quote, America is back, and that's what they think of America as being. But as I've said on a lot of occasions, underneath the 18th century Enlightenment that gave you the Constitution, there is a 17th century theocracy that was Puritan. And one thing the Puritans and the Protestants in general did was they got rid of all of the female saints and demoted the Virgin Mary. So that they really got rid of a lot of uh, female iconography and symbolism that had been in Christianity before. They just dumped it out the window, and what remained was pretty solidly male. In fact, somebody has a study of people who were stolen away by indigenous people in the 17th century, and among those people stolen, all of the men wanted to get back. And very few of the women did because they were actually having more fun among the indigenous <laughs> oh people, goodness. where women had higher status. This
0: this is uh, this is not the way they told the story in that John Wayne movie, The Searchers.
3: They did not. <laughs> no, they didn't. Uh, yeah, there's there's quite a lot of actually research done in this area, and there's a book called The Unredeemed Captive, in which. Uh, woman is stolen away and and they they find it where she is and try to get her to come back and she just doesn't want to.
0: I think I saw you for a minute on screen in the Hulu mini miniseries, the the scene where one of the handmaids, one of the girls says she was gang raped at fourteen and had an abortion and there's a circle of women around her and you're you're part of the circle and
3: so there's there's two circles
0: around you. One of them
3: are the handmaids, and the others are the Aunt Lydia's.
0: The Aunt Lydia's. And, and yeah. the, the head Aunt Lydia says, after hearing the story of the gang rape at 14, whose, whose fa- fault was it? And and what do you answer?
3: Well, the circle answers her fault. And my character, or I should say the central character, Elizabeth Moss, playing Offred, isn't pointing and saying that. And my character bops her over the head to make her join in. Pay attention and start chanting now.
0: (laughs) So whose fault was it her fault? And who led them on? And what's your answer?
3: She did. She did. So in my generation, people used to say she got herself raped, Mm. you know, as if it was an autonomous act.
0: And then Aunt Lydia asks, why did God allow such a terrible thing to happen?
3: Yes. And that they say, teach her a lesson
0: teach her a lesson. And so I wonder what it was like for you to do that scene.
3: Oh, I think it was pretty painful. I mean, it's always, it it brings back that whole generation. Well, the good old days, you know, the good old days, that's what things were like. So if mishaps happened, it was your fault.
0: Well, the week that Trump took the oath of office, you wrote a piece for The Nation, on the subject of the obligations of the artist in the age of Trump, you, you looked at the argument that artists and writers have a special responsibility to speak truth to power. A
3: Yeah, you can't tell them to do that. You can't tell artists and writers what to do. Uh, but some of them will do that.
0: Yeah, I I thought you had a wonderful argument where you said uh, artists are being lectured on their moral duty. How come other other professionals aren't in? Who are yeah.
3: <laughs> Let's hear it for dentists. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what about what
0: about the obligations of dentists in the age yeah, of what Trump? About them?
3: Yeah, <laughs> the obligations of dentists in the age of Trump stand up for dentistry. <laughs> uh, I don't think dentistry is actually being threatened yet, although it might be soon.
0: When you wrote A Handmaid's Tale, that was, of course, in the age of Reagan, the middle of uh, Reagan's uh, eight-year term. Did you write A Handmaid's Tale out of some kind of sense of obligation to speak truth to power?
3: No, I I, I don't. um, As I say, you can't tell artists and writers that they have a special obligation as artists and writers. And, in fact, there's nothing inherently sacred about books. There's nothing inherently sacred about art and books and art have often been employed in the service of dictatorship. So uh let's not get too holy about that. I write things that interest me and that's what authors do. So if they're writing something that doesn't interest them it's not gonna be very good, is it? <laughs> uh, uh so so I think I think we're always we're always piling onto artists and writers' obligations that ought to be the obligations of every citizen.
0: So what kind of artistic responses to Trump might be uh, possible? Of course, we have lots of satire that makes fun yeah. of Trump.
3: Yeah, I, it, it never really... I mean, it, it's interesting and, and funny to those on a certain side of politics, but I, I don't think that Charlie Chaplin's satire of Hitler... Stopped Hitler from doing World War II, yeah. did it? No. no. So what kind of art is likely to come out of it? If, if nothing else, I would say the art of witness. So people making a record of the times we live in. But the times we live in are so volatile and so changeable. You don't know from one week to the next what this administration is likely to do or say. I think people just haven't got a grip on it yet.
0: The New Yorker profile by Rebecca Mead says that you went to one of the uh, women's marches the day after Trump's inauguration. What what was that like?
3: The one in Toronto. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's even at one remove for people in Canada. It's not actually our president, but I'm, people were marching in sympathy. So they were showing support for four people south of the border, and that is, <laughs> that's kind of an odd thing when you come to think of it, but people all over the world did that. March in Toronto was, was one of those, and what happened with all of those gatherings was they were a lot bigger than people thought they were going to be, so there was this huge mass of people. I'm not sure that much marching took place because it was hard to move. And also, you couldn't you couldn't hear anything. <laughs> so you couldn't hear any of the speakers, but you were there. <laughs> you were there. So I saw a lot of old friends. Hi, <laughs> can you hear anything? No, <laughs> like your hat. I saw a lot of interesting signs. Yeah, and, tell us
0: about the signs.
3: Well, the signs were great. I think my favorite sign was a, an older woman holding a sign that said, "After 60 years, I'm still holding. Why am I still holding this?" Effing sign. <laughs> but there are also a number of Handmaid's Tale signs uh, of many kinds, a lot that said, Make Margaret Atwood fiction again, which wasn't very encouraging to me personally, but I think they meant my book. I
0: think they meant Make the Handmaid's Tale fiction That's again. what they meant. <laughs>
3: That's what they meant.
0: Well, The Handmaid's Tale premieres on Hulu. April 26th, Margaret Atwood wrote about artists in the age of Trump for The Nation. You can find it at thenation.com. Margaret, thanks so much for everything you do, and thanks for talking with us today. And thank you. We taped that interview with Margaret Atwood a year ago. Uh, The second season of A Handmaid's Tale begins on TV next Wednesday, April 25th, on Hulu. One more thing. The James Comey memoir, it's called A Higher Loyalty. It's been everywhere in the media for the last week. Um, Just when you thought, I've read it. Here are some thoughts. Just when you thought you were out, Comey's memoir pulls you back in, back into Hillary's email. And Comey's revelation, 11 days before Election Day, that he was reopening that famous investigation one of the th- central themes of the book is that he wants us to see his actions that day in a much larger context as an example of the kind of leadership he exemplifies he sees this memoir as as a self-help book for leaders when he took over as head of the FBI he he's the successor to Robert Mueller Uh, He wanted everyone to know that he had an ambitious goal. He writes in his book, his goal was to make the FBI, quote, the government's leadership factory, close quote, so that the FBI would become, quote, the dominant government supplier of America's corporate leaders, close quote. The FBI, he wants to become the dominant government supplier of America's corporate leaders. That's a frightening thought. And he says he demonstrated what he meant on his first day as director when he gave a speech to all the employees of the FBI wearing a blue shirt. Mueller, as director, had always worn white shirts, so he took this to be a sign of big changes at the Bureau. That's the kind of guy Comey was shaking things up at the Bureau. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guests, Viet Nguyen. He talked about refugee writers on refugee lives in the new book, The Displaced, which he edited. We also spoke with Harold Meyerson about California politics. Thanks to our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, this is happening, Jerry, quickly. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.